This is Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois. The podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. And now here's your host, Navy SEAL founder of Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, Rob Dubois. 12 years ago, on the 4th of July, 2012, I released Powerful Peace and Navy SEALs Lessons on Peace from a Lifetime at War. It was a culmination of years of effort, years of writing blog posts and articles and published essays for the U.S. government, etc. It was a gathering of ideas, especially during those first 10 years of the global war on terror. And in that process, I had the blessing of meeting some great advisors and friends and peers and folks that helped me walk into the world of authoring. It's a complicated business, as anybody who's done it understands. And we support each other. When you look at Powerful Peace, you'll see blurbs from people like Tony Robbins and Admiral Brian Losey and Congressman Brian Whitman. But none of these people are folks who have written about Powerful Peace or about smart power or about the things that I'm focused on or our current focus on total self-mastery. However, we encourage each other, we work together, and we all help edify each other and build each other's focus and awareness and how to make a bigger difference in our own spheres. Today's guest, I'm really glad to bring on a guy who supported me from the very beginning and was able to speak. In fact, we might, if we have time today, we'll read the blurb (laughs) from David. But David is a friend. I'm going to start out with the introduction for where he's coming from. Uh, Valens Global was established in August 2014 by David Gartenstein Ross, who by then was already established as an analyst, author, and scholar specializing in terrorism and violent non-state actors. Valens was founded on the belief that the private sector was vital to advancing the national security interests of America and its allies and to saving lives by protecting the public from terrorist attacks and other threats of sub-state violence. The goal, simply put, is to understand, predict, and act to empower clients as they navigate and address emergent challenges rooted in security, technology, and changing global society. You've heard many of those same concepts from me and my national security work over the recent years because we're focusing on the big picture. We're not focusing on, you know, just point me at them and let me shoot them. It's not as simple as that. Bob Gates famously said when he was SecDef, are we creating more than we're killing? And Jim Mattis, when he was CENTCOM, said, if you don't fully fund State Department, I'm going to have to buy more bullets. So, David Gartenstein-Ross, welcome to Beyond Your Limits. Thank you, Rob. It's an honor to join you, and many congratulations on the 10th anniversary of Powerful Peace, which I was really honored to be included in as one of the blurbers who you reached out to. You had already been in the industry, as we talked about here, you know, when, when Valens was founded eight years ago next month. Yep. As we're taping on the 5th of July. And there's a kind of special thing to talk about on that too. Usually I don't like to put dates out because a podcast is evergreen. People can hear it and hopefully it'll be relevant one year later and five years later. But it is relevant that we're taping on 5 July of 2022 because again, my book was released 10 years ago yesterday. And we're doing a big event this month about the powerful peacemaker workshop in late July. And I want folks to jump in on that. But also July 5th of 2022 is the date of publication of another work by a guy I know. Tell us about your new book. Enemies Near and Far, How Jihadist Groups Strategize, Plot, and Learn, 
which is out today. That is the recording date of this podcast, July the 5th, co-written with my colleague, Thomas Jocelyn. It's a book that's a culmination of a lot of work. It's definitely going to be the last book I write about jihadist terrorism. It's looking at how these groups engage in organizational learning. It starts from the question, why is it that the field has so often gotten big questions wrong? And we've talked about some of those big questions. I don't want to belabor them. But questions like, is the Arab Spring going to empower militant groups or render them irrelevant? Questions like, is the rise of ISIS, the Islamic State, going to render al-Qaeda irrelevant, destroy al-Qaeda, or create some new opportunities for the al-Qaeda organization, which ISIS broke off from? In both of those cases, there were these analytic disputes where uh, the field, as I show in my book, did not get the, their answers right. And I think part of what was misunderstood is the way that groups like these engage in organizational learning. There's a lot more that you can't see on the surface. And that's what the book is about. It's about how these groups engage in organizational learning. It's about jihadism, but it's meant to be more broad. We're obviously in an era where there's a lot of different sub-state groups that use violence as a means of operating, including right here in the United States, as, as we can see in recent days, not just groups, but also networks. And so understanding the process of learning for violent non-state actors, for a variety of sub-state groups and movements is, I would say, very important to performing better in the 21st century and creating a better world. That is so timely because, as you say, I mean, we are looking at a time, uh, as you're all talking about your own, your own authoring is winding down from that and you're evolving in different directions personally. Uh, you know, the GWAT, the Global War on Terror, OIF, OEF, Iraqi Freedom and Enduring Freedom, uh, those are all artifacts now of history, recent history, but still artifacts. Um, and our learning, just like the, the uh, violent extremist organization's learning, is evolving. And I think it's amazing to go after that because timeliness, like I said, is so appropriate in the U.S. right now. We have extremist groups rising in the U.S. Uh, there's this uh, a longstanding name, the Christian identity, was uh, that was uh, and probably still has its its little remnants, uh, tattered uh, sleeves, basically of the original organization. But the Christian identity, CI. Uh, was exactly what it called itself. It was people who looked a lot like me, ethnically uh, homogenous, um, and uh, and and wasps, and they called themselves good Christians, and they sought to kill people, um, people who weren't white, people who weren't straight, people who weren't whatever. Um, CI is now unfortunately becoming a general term that's appropriate to a lot of folks in the, in America with our extremism rising. Uh, we have. Uh, nationalist uh, tendencies that are becoming, we, if, we, if we play the cards right and actually include Americans in the conversation, it won't metastasize. But the divisions within the U.S., the uh, radicalizing on both extremes is getting worse. And, uh, and how these groups learn, like you're talking about from established terrorist groups, is a really good place, I think, for the preventers to deal with dealing with 
the violence in America today, uh, which is formative. It's, it's, it's coming together, but it's not hardened yet. There's no AQ exactly in the U.S. You have a lot of organizations, a lot of fringes that are trying to identify themselves as the one, and they're not jihadis. Fully agree with that. For those who aren't familiar with the term Christian identity, it's not just a reference to people who are Christian and for whom that identity is front and center. It's actually a schismatic church with a very different interpretation of what Christianity means than uh, you know any mainstream Christians would hold. But we obviously, obviously, what you're talking about is is much more beyond that initial sect, the Christian identity sect, but rather a society that's both schismatic um, and where different extremes are hardening around different versions of identity. Um, the big project I'm working on right now uh, that's that's public relates to domestic extremism, trying to understand the contours of the tapestry of extremism that we're seeing domestically, driven by a number of different factors. Obviously, you have a change in medium of communication. You know, Marshall McLuhan in the 1960s, 1970s, famously said, the media is the message, um, meaning that the, the medium by which we communicate really determines the message. There he was talking about the move to broadcasting media, to television. And now we have the move to social media with um, much more sloganeering, very rapid communication. It's very easy for you know lies or half-truths or misrepresentations or simplifications to travel quickly and for ideas to harden around that. There's much more access of, for anybody, whether uh, mainstream or extreme or a violent extremist or just someone who might have been marginalized before but has great ideas to reach out a mass, to a mass of people. There's a collapse between uh, the time it takes to propagate a message and the time it takes to spur people on to action. So people who are trying to spur violence are able to do so much more quickly than they could before. All that is one part of the tapestry, along with demographic shifts in the United States, um, along with a variety of pressures, currently inflation, problems related to climate change, uh, a changing global order in which the U.S. is declining in power relative to others, foreign manipulation. All these are part of that tapestry. And it's a tapestry also where many people feel you know, isolated or marginalized or uh, that their voices are, are being censored, whether by the right or by the left. All this creates this explosive cocktail where um, both the work I'm doing and also your work, Rob, on powerful peace is very, very relevant. That was so perfectly said. That's a, what you just said in, a, in one or two sentences is what I've been trying to say for years about all of these uh, grievances, people who feel marginalized. And, and I, I talked about that in Powerful Peace. I said, you can't, uh, you know, I can't understand terrorism. Of course, you and I have worked in that specific field for, for a lot of our adult lives. But it's not that simple. Bin Laden didn't attack the towers because Britney Spears shows her belly button. There was a lot going on behind it, a lot of rationalizing, a lot of uh, uh, ambiguous justification. I, I like to look back to the the morphing of, of the rationale for this or that terrorist act. And you're seeing it today in any extreme organization in the U.S. or uh, uh, the uh, 
activities overseas right now. We're having, we just had a recently, we're talking about the taping date of this. And just this past week, there was a shooting in Copenhagen with um, several dead and dozens wounded. That just didn't seem to be a thing you'd see 10 years ago, 20 years ago. There is a, there's a swelling of, of agitation and violence and as you talked about social media, the collapse between the uh, stimulation and the response. These days, as you were speaking, it occurred to me today, unlike any time before, you can believe whatever you want and find justification for it. There is a source that says you're right. In fact, there was a book one time that I saw, didn't buy it, but I was fascinated by it. It said, the title was, Why Can't I Remember My Alien Abduction? <laughs> And the questions that just that one title, that one sentence, why can't I remember my alien abduction? It it preassumes that there was an alien abduction and that there's some sophisticated me- means for preventing me from remembering it. Uh, I remember back in the day, the best mo- best book title I've ever heard was um, uh, by Al Franken. And when he was just a comic, now he's back to comicking. But of course, he centered it for a while. But he wrote a book called "Rush Limbaugh is a Big Fat Idiot and Other Observations." That title, regardless of politics or whether I appreciate or or don't appreciate his perspective, the title's perfect because "and other observations" establishes. Okay, now that we've agreed on that, <laughs> you know, now, dear reader, <laughs> let's move on to other uh, other facts, right? Uh, so. Today, if I want to believe that there are uh, baby-eating pedophiles in the basement of a pizza parlor with no basement, I will find all the proof I want to believe that and, and harden myself, as you said, hardening around these, these uh, belief systems, most of which are flawed. Yeah, obviously the reference there is to QAnon. Another, I think, good barometer of the degree to which community can rapidly harden around a conspiracy theory is the spread of the lizard people idea, right? The lizard people has been there for a while. It was originally uh, something formulated by David Ick in the 1990s, um, who, you know, had, (laughs) I I won't go into, uh, into the background there because it's not that interesting, nor do we need to dive down that rabbit hole. But my point is that, like, I remember being uh, in law school in 1999, uh, browsing Amazon.com and looking at these David Ick books about how there were lizard people who secretly controlled America and England and presumably the rest of the world. It was quite marginal, right? You didn't have a constituency of lizard people believers at the time. It's online communities that allows you to you know, rapidly uh, find others who either believe as you do or can be persuaded to believe as you do. Now, this isn't a new observation, right? This is an observation that we've been making for some time. If you go back to, you know, just after, Rob, you and I connected, uh, we had the rise of ISIS with it, with it really gaining steam in 2013 to 2014. 2014 is when ISIS broke out from Al-Qaeda. And when we were looking at radicalization patterns at the time, it was sort of over there, so to speak, you know, over here versus over there. It was sort of over there. It was this group that was centered in Syria and Iraq, but it was drawing a lot of Westerners in. 
And the the observation was frequently made. I think uh, this is appropriating a, an example that uh, J.M. Berger used to give back then, which is that if you were an extremist, you know, an, an ISIS believer growing up in, say, Des Moines, Iowa, in the 1980s, you might or the 1970s, you might expect that you would never encounter somebody who believed as you did. Whereas in 2014, you could hop onto Twitter. And in five minutes, you could be chatting with someone who was right there in Raqqa. The ability to be hyper-connected had changed things. Now, flash forward another eight years from 2014, and this is much more widespread. You know, communities that are both, uh, you know, communities that are extreme in simply malignant ways are much more widespread. Now, to be, I don't think this clarification is necessary, but this isn't a critique of, um, you know, the online space as a whole, right? I, I think it's very clear that the internet is here to stay. Um, arguing that we should go to a pre-internet world is, I think, somewhat irrelevant. But if you look back to, to let, 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 we're flashing backwards to 2014. So let's flash backwards a little bit beyond that, back to 2011 and the Arab Spring. One of the big times when my field got one of its issues wrong. I remember how much enthusiasm there was at the time for the internet because the Arab Spring revolutions were to a large extent social media revolutions. Right. It was about flash mobs largely. Yeah. That's how people got to the squares to do the big presences. And not just flash mobs, but also just the ability to organize. I mean, this, I guess this is what you mean by flash mobs. There's probably two or three different meanings of the term, but the ability to, to organize large amounts of people in a way that just overwhelmed the ability of security forces to tamp them down. Sure. No, I didn't I didn't mean that the flash mobs were the Arab Spring so much as the enabling like you described with the technologies. Yeah. The technologies were the big the big breakthrough to make that possible because those people protest in the government in all those countries 10 years earlier and 50 years earlier. Yep. But they didn't have the tool and the tool brought it to a head. Yeah, it took me a second, but but I, I got your meaning by flash mobs as I was midway through my soliloquy there. But going back to, to, to that time, I remember there was this romanticized vision of what social media and hyper-connectivity was going to do for the world and for societies. It was thought of as being inherently democratizing. I remember making the point at the time uh, that this means of connection can be used for good and for ill. Right now, we're seeing some of those ill effects. You often see this when you have a major communication leap forward. It's used for good and for ill. And to some extent, a major communication leap forward might um, exceed people's ability to think through the consequences. Going back to the 1970s, uh, the Iranian Revolution, one of the big technological advances that helped the Islamic Republic of Iran ultimately come to power was cassette tapes, hmm. right? Ayatollah Khomeini uh, was able to propagate his sermons and, and attain great popularity based on cassette tapes. This ability to copy the sermons, copy his speeches, and pass them around was unheard of previously. So we have the same thing occurring with social media 
And we as a society haven't really caught up to these advances. And a lot rides, not just in the US, but globally, on the ability to rapidly catch up to this major leap forward in communication, equally seismic, probably more so uh, than the Gutenberg printing press. Uh, Catching up with it and understanding what this means for a good society and what this means for governance is one of several kind of wrenching and I, I dare say existential questions of the time. Yeah, the internet, like a gun, like a hammer, like a car, is purely agnostic. It's what people choose to do with it that creates the results. The, the internet can't do anything by itself. It just sits there and waits for people to use it, to exploit it for positive or negative activities. And you reminded me, um, I threatened earlier to read your blurb from Powerful Peace, but you reminded me of something more urgent. <clears throat> uh, in, in the preface to Powerful Peace, I talked about, you know, we, we, we at Impact Actual are all about body, mind, heart, and soul, the, the physical, mental, emotional, and ethical, ethical, spiritual dimensions of life. <laughs> but the technological advances are, while they're incredibly beneficial, penicillin is a good thing. Novocaine's a great thing. I'm really a fan of Novocaine. I I, I shudder to imagine my own dental surgeries a uh, hundred years ago without that. But I talk in the front of powerful piece about change, radical change, as things uh, are accelerating through our technological advances and cultural advances are are commensurate. I said we must adapt. Just during the year it took to write powerful piece, the human race crossed the historic threshold of seven billion members. And here's the key phrase: the the money shot. If unprecedented technological advances aren't allowed to run ahead of rational, the mind, compassionate, the heart, and moral, the soul, human guidance, the consequences will be devastating. And it wasn't new information when in 2012, uh, Twitter was six years old in 2012. So these things had already been existing, but, but we're talking about what how fast things can go really badly, I guess, and and how things can go good, how, how they can go well if we use the tools right. Absolutely. And right now, I think we're in a moment where everyone is focusing on the bad. Ten years ago, we were at a moment where everyone was focusing on the good. As is, As was the case ten years ago, where we are right now is not exactly right. Uh, I think that that we're more pessimistic than we need to be because destruction tends to breed renewal. And I think that what we're seeing is we're in a moment of destruction. We're also in a moment of renewal. And potential. And potential, from. yeah, absolutely. And I, lo- I love the passage that you read. It's focusing on... Um, multiple things, population, technology, technological advance. And, you know, that you started the interview by introducing me via Valens Global, my company. And, you know, Valens's mission statement talks about how the company stands at the intersection of technology, security, and changing global society. To me, the, the very statement that you read from Powerful Peace, that's very front and center for the mission statement as to why I decided to do my own thing. Because I think that there's a more effective way to get at this. There's a more effective way to train people to be ready 
to understand the danger but capture the potential. There's a better way that the private sector can intersect these massive global problems, not just from uh, a management consultant type perspective, but I think that the private sector has an opportunity to play a truly transformative role in tackling these challenges and bringing out that potential, which you write of it in your book. That's why I founded Valens. And that's when all is said and done, what I want Valens to be remembered as, which is a transformative organization, which was able to, you know, when it had the opportunity, uh, make a profound difference across these issue sets that we're discussing today. Would I be correct in summarizing it or just distilling it down to say that the idea behind that transformation is based on your empowering deciders to make better decisions? You're giving them information and ways of thinking about things. They can, like a, like a coach, a coach says, have you thought about this? And they say, oh, let me implement that. <laughs> and transformation follows. I think that's part of it. Um, you know, Valens is designed to be multiple things. Uh, my own background is as an analyst, so a lot of what it does is analytic. But I want it to also be able to directly provide solutions without just advising somebody, hey, here's something you can do. So I'll give you one example across the array of areas where we're trying to make a difference. So I think I've spent a lot of time on uh, really for the past six years is thinking about mass shootings like the kind that we're you know, tragically seeing in the past few days. It struck me, you know, as someone who studied terrorism, studied terrorist attacks, and then was looking at a lot of the worst mass shootings in this country's history, that one common element of attacks that leave a lot of people dead is that the physical architecture um, of the building where the attack takes place, favors the shooter, stands in the way of those who are trying to escape. Um, you know, a good example of this is the awful and notorious attack at the Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. You know, that attack had had multiple mass shooter drills. It had, in fact, had a mass shooter drill so close to the time of that attack that you still had uh, paper from those drills that were on the doorways in which students were shot. So you had this attacker, Adam Lanza, come into the school and the teachers performed exactly as they were trained to do in the recent drill. So why did so many people die? Well, it was because the doors didn't lock. Right? Students were taught to shelter in place but the doors didn't lock. They could only lock from the outside. And so they were sheltering in place in an area where a shooter could easily come in and kill them, which is what happened. So I developed this idea. Uh, I call it crisis architecture. It's designed to be different than securitized architecture, like the you know, barbed wired fences and metal detectors and the like. It's designed to maintain the form and the function, and I would say the beauty of a building's architecture, while also making it more secure and increasing survivability in the case of a mass attack. So to me, that's the kind of bridge that I want, where there's something conceptual, this idea of crisis architecture, there's this clear problem, and it's not just talking to the policymaker and say, hey, you can do X, Y, Z, 
because I believe in policymakers, but I also believe that as citizens, as a private company, we can advance things far beyond where policymakers are in any given moment. And so this is supposed to be something that is implementable by anybody uh, with all of the principles of crisis architecture being open sourced. Uh, there's a, an article I originally wrote for War on the Rocks, which outlines the eight key principles. So that to me bridges what we want to be. Part of it is advice, part of it is information, analysis, but part of it is also creating something concrete that can be implemented, that can address the solution to whatever challenge we're focusing on and can address that solution right now without waiting for the government, be it federal or state, to act. I took a note on that. Crisis architecture. I love that concept. And I will never use it without attribution. Let me put that on on tape. Um, but uh, that is a, a great example. Like you say, it's going beyond just recommending, hey, have you tried, tried this and that? But to implement actually uh, actionable ideas coming from Valens. Um, and a uh, little sneak peek, Impact Actual is actually working on our own uh, active shooter guide right now. Uh, one of our internal coaches is a, a campus security expert and lifelong cop. And so um, he and I have teamed up to to get something out there so that we call it, you know, parents with a plan or something like that. So folks can take control, take a lot of fear, as you know, and terrorism works because of fear. That's what it's literally in the name. Terrorism has the word fear in it, a ver variation on the word fear. The only reason terrorism works is because people fear disproportionately to the actual threat. Uh, terrorism is not based on a country invading and saying, we're going to get you and taking the stuff and blowing up houses like Putin's doing now. It's based on implying things might happen and we can really get you so you better get scared and make bad decisions. And then we actually get the, the, the strength we don't have organically. Um, I used to talk about the green goo, you know, in the rock with Nick Cage, there was a, this green goo and it was going to get launched from Alcatraz into the city and it was going to kill zillions of people because of the green goo. We fear the green goo, but we don't even have a freaking idea what the green goo is. It's just <laughs> terrorizing. And the same thing here is when in crisis, people react with panic and fear and make bad decisions and the outcomes are worse for the good guys, for the victims. Um, I, I love this idea you're developing and I want to promote it and put, put it forward and get the crisis architecture, crisis architecture out there from you and yours uh, as much as possible. And, and it reminded me that, uh, it, you know, we can't wait for the policymakers. Uh, I'm going to indict them here again. Uh, the policymakers aren't making policies except as they benefit their side. That's the first and most critical division in America right now is that the policymakers are fighting for 51%. And that's it. I actually sat down with uh, Ike Skelton before he died, uh, who had almost 50 years in Congress. And I said, sir, it's just about power and do dominance anymore. Gay marriage, gun laws, uh, the economy, everything is based only on dominance of the party. He said, yes, that's true. That's accurate now. And it is a catastrophe. We're heading for a cliff as, as a society because generally speaking, there's some good people in Congress, but generally speaking, the function of policymakers is to have dominance over the other side. And the, the, the issues that we're all in need of, like crisis architecture, like dealing with guns and mass shootings, that can only be done by the people because they're, they are fixed in place up there at the top. One thing that I, I strongly expected 
uh, a few years ago, I, I do still think it will happen, is the emergence of a third party. Uh, I think that, that our divisions are so deep across partisan lines, and it's so frustrating to people who aren't true blue partisans on one side or the other, that there's a lot of market space that is not currently being captured politically by the Democratic and Republican parties. There's some obstacles to doing so. I mean, the country is really set up to run with a two-party system. But I think that we really are have a situation that's primed uh, for the emergence of a, a third party. But Rob, good on you on the, the work that you're doing uh, for schools. You know, I have, I have um, two daughters who are in elementary school. It's an issue that means a lot to me. And you know, we should talk offline. There may, be, there may be some opportunity to do some good work together there. And to me, that's what's important. As you said, policymakers, there are some good policymakers, but right now, you know, member of Congress, fairly enough, is not something that it's not a job title that most people respect in 2022. Uh, and when the political system isn't working, you know, you can despair, <laughs> you can descend into a state of anarchy, or you can step up and try to resolve issues. Right now, I'm taking this uh, this last approach of trying to to tackle the issues that I think policymakers aren't addressing in the way that they should. That's exactly what it is. We have to take action, purposeful action, sensible action. I'm, I don't want to uh, inflame those who would love to say, that's right, time for action, because there's way too many of those out there. The firebrands, many of them holding tiki torches. Did I say that out loud? That was the quiet part. Um, so um, we are talking about leadership and the abdication thereof. Uh, at the national level, at many other levels in the U.S. right now, the division in, uh, is is uh, is making our leadership impotent. You and I have talked a lot recently offline about leadership within our own organizations. We're both small business owners, leaders of small organizations, and and I know that although you and I are necessarily we're, naturally we're going to devolve into talking shop. We're terrorist guys. We're going to talk terrorism. But more importantly, I wanted to make sure I give a chance here for for the listener to hear you uh, sharing more about this idea of how to be an effective leader, unlike what we're seeing at the congressional level uh, and, and unlike what we see on TV, the two-dimensional uh, sitcom version of leadership. You've evolved drastically in eight years with Valens, yeah. personally, I know. Can you tell us uh, – some of the lessons you've walked away from there because people are going to be applying them in their own, not only companies, but their own families. You know, we're leaders within society. At Valens, I've moved from being what I think we could objectively call a, a poor leader and manager to being a good leader and manager. Um, you know, there, so when I founded Valens, I was still, uh, I still had a W2 job at, um, at a think tank. So I had a full-time job in addition to running this company. We hit some uh, financial troubles pretty quickly. And so I really had to scramble. I had a, a newborn baby. My second daughter was born uh, 
a few months after I founded Valens. Valens was founded on August 1st of 2014, and River was born on December 1st of 2014. So 2015 was one of the worst years of my entire life. I think I pulled something like 15 to 20 all-nighters that year, uh, doing you know, staying up all night doing work. It was just, it was not a good year. And that was reflected in the kind of leadership that I brought into the company. It wasn't leadership that I'm proud of. I was proud of the projects that we were able to undertake. So my, uh, someone who I, I work very closely with is my, my chief operating officer, uh, Carolina Ponsetto. Uh, she goes by Nina. And she has this story uh, shortly after she began at Valence. She started in uh, on September 11th of 2017. Wow. And our first, uh, the first 360s that she took uh, that for the company, she delivered the results in, in January of 2018. And on those 360s, like, you know, the, the evaluations I got were, were horrible. Uh, she, she has a story where she was walking into giving me my 360 evaluation and she thought she was going to be fired. <laughs> um, so she gave me the, the horrible evaluation that I deserved. And uh, I said, yeah, look, I agree with this. Let's, let's figure out how to make me a better leader. And Nina said that that's when she knew that she was, that I was someone who she could work with long-term. And to me, it was a, a process of taking the 360s and not trying to conform to every comment, but using them to understand what was I doing wrong. One thing that I think frustrates people about 360s, sorry, for context, a 360 just means that you get evaluations from every direction. Everyone in a company or organization, um, at least who you have proximity to, will weigh in anonymously on what they think of the job that you're doing. To me, the, the wisdom of a 360 is not that you see what people think and you do what's going to make you more popular. Instead, it's really use the wisdom contained there to understand what am I doing wrong. People get tripped up with 360s because advice is often contradictory. And of course it is, right? Rob, you'll have hundreds of people with views about your podcast and some love it and some hate it for entirely opposite reasons. And if you try to satisfy them all, then the podcast becomes nothing. Mm -hmm. But what you can figure out is what is the truth and what cross cuts these opinions such that I can make a change that will have the highest impact. What I realized for me is that number one, I had to, um, I was used to being a subject matter expert. You know, my background is working as a scholar and an analyst on these issues. I had to transition to being more of a leader. Um, and so understanding that my staff was not my research assistants, but instead looking to empower and to provide people a path for growth. That was one lesson. Becoming more, more calm in my style of leadership, which is something I still work with. It is still one of my goals, but I definitely have become calmer over the years. I mean, there, there are other things that I would throw in there as well, but to me, it's not so much those specific, here's the principles that I'm going to implement. Instead, I put my finger on the process. 
is a process of looking at these horrible 360s, not fighting them, even when there are things I disagreed with, understand that, that there's still some nugget of wisdom that I can get out of this evaluation where I have disagreements with part of it, to the point where I understand and have a good map of what am I doing well, what am I doing poorly. One thing that I've done in my life, which is very atypical, is I became a tournament chess player as a grown-up. <laughs> I'd never played chess, uh, not certainly not competitively, uh, you know, in high school or in college. It was really much later in life that I picked up uh, chess as a tournament player, and I'm not, you know, I'm I'm, I'm not great by any means. But so that I can do competitively and do fairly well at the tournaments where I play at, at my rating level. And something chess has taught me is that you always need to be able to look at a board and understand the story of the board. You know, objectively assess, here's the strengths of my position, here's the weaknesses of my position, these are the centers of gravity or the areas which we'll need to focus on if I want to win a game. 360s are very similar. A 360, you have to be able to look at it, understand objectively, what are my strengths, what are my weaknesses? And anyway, over time, by using 360s, using that process, and thinking deeply each 360, each of which kind of reflected improvement and me becoming a better leader, what was I doing right? How do I further lean into that? Uh, until I reached a point where I didn't need 360s anymore because all they were doing was affirming something I already knew, which is that I had gone from being objectively a poor leader to objectively being a good leader. Um, you know, the next step for me is, is I would say, good to great, uh, the latter of which I think will be reflected in what the organization is able to do, not just in metrics that I get on a uh, numerical metrics that I get on a page. I love the 360s myself. I, I, I seek out um, assessment of others on me. Our team is, you know, they'll tell you, for all my faults, that's one thing Rob does right, right? Looking, uh, there's a proverb that the fool scorns correction, the wise man seeks it out, right? Uh, I don't always enjoy it in the moment, though. Let's be very, very honest. <laughs> when I'm, I love to be criticized. I love criticism because it shines a light in some part of me I don't yet see. If I'm behaving otherwise, I want to know it. And another important uh, principle there is that they're not always right. Like you said, you take it all on board and assess it for yourself, but at least you have a chance to look at it. But it never feels good in the moment because I always want to be just right. And I'm on, I'm on track. Oh, wait, I'm not? Oh, damn. Okay, cool. Let me, let me assume this new information and process it and, and apply it. That makes, I mean, lifelong growth. That's, that's, that's what we should be aspiring to. And leaders especially so, because uh, a leader's life affects so many other lives. And your job of growth as a leader is never linear. One thing I'm finding this year, so Valens has grown um, to about a 25-person organization as of, of today, July 2022. And... I read this thing called the rule of three, that every time an organization triples in size, it becomes, in effect, a different organization. A lot of things that worked for me even a year ago don't work for me today. I find that, that this year I've had to reconstruct my style of leadership hmm. in multiple ways, even after having gone through all that work of establishing myself as a good leader for the organization, the organization changed. Now, that didn't mean that I was doing a bad job. It just meant that for 
every habit that we'd ingrained, I had to rethink, does that work now for an organization of this size? And so, so I'd say not only um, should we invite correction, but we should understand that, that if we're developing an organization or developing an enterprise, we're going through a constant, we're in a constant state of learning where what worked a year ago might not work today and works today, what works today may well not work a year from now. And to me, that's something very important on a path to, to growth, a path to success. Well, you really nailed it. I mean, especially as you're approaching 27, your third tripling, you know, from one to three, three to nine and nine to 27, that is profound. And I love the idea of that. I've never heard the rule of threes, but it makes absolute sense that what works in that time doesn't work when things change. The organism changes, the organization changes. You know, we are nurtured on milk as infants, and we don't survive well on milk alone when we're 27 or 50 years old. And certainly not the kind of milk that we were drinking as infants. <laughs> yeah, I don't want any of that. Thank you very much. There's a fetish for everybody, but that's not what this show is about. <laughs> I want to make sure I keep my promise or threat thereof. You blurbed, powerful piece, how we met, how you supported this launch 10 years ago yesterday. Quote from David Gardenstein Ross, terrorism analyst and author of Bin Laden's Legacy, an earlier title. I don't denounce violence, I embrace it. That's a quote of you from the book. That isn't the kind of statement one would expect in a book outlining lessons on peace, but neither is this book typical of the genre. We live in remarkable times with unprecedented challenges and entire societies that appear to be fraying at the edges. Dubois' gripping and eminently readable book, Powerful Peace, offers powerful lessons, as well as incisive methodology for thinking about the important and often paradoxical work of peacebuilding in the 21st century. I don't think like I could come up with a better endorsement for what we're doing today, 10 years later. You know, relevance is something that every author wants to have in the legacy of his book. Don't let it be invalid five years later, because then it stopped. Well, of course, it stopped selling. <laughs> but more importantly, we want our work to matter to people. And I hope that what you wrote there is just as relevant and more so today. The work you're working on is relevant and more so today. Please remind the audience the title of your newest book so they can find that. Newest book is Enemies Near and Far, published by Columbia University Press, officially out July 5th, 2022. How cool is that? And, you know, we never want to wrap an episode without saying exactly like that. Like, how do they find your work? How do they find you? Valens Global is the company. I want people to be able to reach out to you, and especially the folks who are looking for things like crisis architecture and solutions and better processing for making better decisions. How would you recommend people find you and make contact? Well, I'll just provide my email address. It's David, that's D-A-V-E-E-D, at valensglobal.com. They can find our website, valensglobal.com online. You can also find me on social media. I'm most active on Twitter, at DavidGR, or you can hit me up on LinkedIn, and you can find me by my full name, David Gartenstein Ross. And spelling is going to be their own opportunity. <laughs> I, mean, I, I assume you'll have my name spelled absolutely yes we'll make sure it's spelled correctly i assume you're the, spelled correctly again the collateral we can hope yeah i double triple check everything on that uh, we we're joking before the taping here about the dallas dallas tax right about different syllables in accents and 
we'll make sure we get David Gardenstein Ross correct on the text. And thank you so much, David. This is really powerful stuff. Great ideas for people to go beyond their limits as leaders, as citizens. I mean, if we're going to highlight the fact that the policymakers aren't making policy for the best interest of the nation, it's time for us to step in to that gap and be proactive. Thanks so much, Rob. I really enjoyed this conversation. You have a great podcast. And to listeners, I'd like to just commend Rob on the 10th anniversary of Powerful Peace. And I will say, having had the opportunity now to rehear that blurb that I wrote a decade ago, I think it's still true today. I think your book is very relevant today, perhaps more so than it was a decade ago. I'd encourage people also to pick up Rob's book, which is very worthwhile, which I had the privilege to read about 10 years ago, and something which I still think of in my day-to-day life. Thank you very much for that. And again, with this being the 10-year anniversary yesterday, as we're taping it, and this show will air in a couple of weeks, I want people to be aware that the Powerful Peacemaker Workshop is happening in late July, and we'll probably be doing iterations in August and so forth in 2022. So, This isn't just about talking theories. Both David and I are talking about practical application, how to make people safer, make people happier, take better care of yourself as a leader, and take better care of those you lead. So thank you, dear listener. This has been another powerful episode of Beyond Your Limits, and I'm looking forward to talking to you next week, and we will see you soon. Aloha. Thanks for joining us on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois the podcast that helps you destroy self-limiting beliefs, unchain your potential, and create the meaningful life you were made for. For more information about Impact Actual and the Impact Unchained course, visit impactactual.com. And be sure to subscribe on Apple iTunes or wherever you like to listen so you'll never miss a show. We'll see you next time on Beyond Your Limits with Rob Dubois.